Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen Hassan with another episode of the Influence Continuum. I'm very excited about my guest today who is uh, communicating with me from South Africa uh, on this recording platform. Dr. John Hunter is a South African researcher and lecturer based in Johannesburg. And, and John, I wanted to tell our listeners that I first became aware of your important work at a cult conference, the International Cultic Studies Association conference um, that was in Louisville, Kentucky this year. And my friend Yuval de Orr, who has a very fascinating model on awe and emotion uh, that connects the dots with undue influence, he said, you got to check out John Hunter's presentation, which I avidly attended. And I'm going to continue a little bit more flattery, if I don't, if you don't mind. Uh, no, not at all. So, Take your uh, time. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So your, your interest in large group awareness trainings, what we in the biz call LGATs, and their impact on mood and psychosis is grounded in your personal experience of bipolar disorder and your participation in an LGAT in 2010. I should also say yeah. that in 2017, you completed your PhD in psychology at the University of KwaZulu-Natal, proposing a neurobiological explanation for the relationship between LGAT conditions and results. More specifically, Dr. Hunter, you put forward a dopaminergic defense hypothesis, which offers it fascinating insights into both the one, the transformational experiences associated with large group awareness training participation, LGATs, and two, the common claims of psychological harm and problematic behavior associated with large group awareness training participation. And in 1920, excuse me, in 2022, you published an article summarizing the mechanism behind the dopaminergic defense in the Journal for the Cognitive Science of Religion, Hunter, uh, 2022. And uh, welcome to the Influence Continuum. Thanks so much. It's uh, yeah, really great to to be chatting. Yeah, and for me, I worked with people from S that e evolved to Landmark Forum, LifeSpring, Insight. So many of these go to a hotel and have these incredible transformational experiences, and then recruit everybody in the world and. Yeah. An installation of beliefs like you are God and you create your own reality. This is my my input. Uh, or that there's no such thing as a victim. And if you got raped, it's because you created the experience. Or, yeah. you know, yeah. all kinds of other bizarro things where intelligent, educated people, uh, maybe they're at a point in their life where they're looking for some change or maybe they're trying to get out of a bad relationship but they wind up having these amazing experiences and some people have psychotic breaks and nervous breakdowns and it just causes a tremendous amount of damage. So if you're listening to this podcast and you heard me speak about undue influence in a lot of different uh, contexts, large group awareness trainings is another one of these contexts that I warn people about. And with that, I'd like you to start by telling us your experience at a large group awareness training and how you came to evolve this uh, incredibly important um, uh, connection with brain activity and this experience. Sure. Um, and I, I think maybe the first thing to do is just to thank uh, Yuval. Um, he seems to have been a person who came upon my research without me knowing about it. And when I arrived at the conference, I was very unaware that there was this person who was, I mean, quite well-connected and, and obviously had been involved in the, um, the, 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 that community for quite a while. And it was really just amazing to, to kind of see also that his work kind of is, it's very similar to mine in a lot of ways. And it's really nice when you kind of have, you've done work 
and you're not too sure, you know, it, it feels right, but nobody's recognizing it. And somebody clearly uh, competent and, um, you know, a very smart person has kind of come to very similar conclusions on, on his own. So that was a really uh, nice thing for me. Yeah, I think a lot just, of my- and I'll just add, forgive me, John, I'll just add that I've interviewed Yuval so people can come to freedomofmind.com, look up Yuval Y. U-V-A-L, or L-A-O-R, yeah. or look him up on ac Academia or ResearchGate or any number of other sites. But back to you. He was the one who yeah, introduced so, me to you. I mean, so, so it, was, it was great to, to actually have other people have a look at my research because I, it, to me, it makes very much, it makes a huge amount of sense. And I, and I struggled to kind of get uh, people to, to have a look at it. And so it's, it's great that that people are looking at it at the moment. Um, in terms of the way that I, I became involved in a large group awareness training, I think it is useful to kind of go back a little bit to my, my, my diagnosis of bipolar disorder because it really was crucial in me coming up with the, the hypothesis or the, the theory that I have got at the, the moment. So I was diagnosed in 2003. And for those that don't know much about bipolar disorder, it can be a really destructive illness. I mean. 50 to 60% of people often are not able to, to work properly. It can cause problems in relationships with your family, um, you know, very high suicide rates. And so I really wanted to understand it and manage it as, as well as I, I could. So from 2003 to 2010, I was studying the illness and trying to understand what causes further episodes. And let's so, describe for our listeners who may not sure. be familiar with that uh, by what bipolar disorder is, if you don't mind. Sure. So I think a lot, a lot of people are more familiar with depression. So depression is kind of the low end of the mood spectrum and generally it involves low levels of energy, feeling really pessimistic, feeling very guilty and ashamed and negative and just feeling like your life has no value. And obviously the, the association with suicide and depression is close because people just believe that life will never get better. And often the, if you look objectively at that person's life, it's actually not nearly as bad as they think it is. I mean, that's really the nature of depression, that you've got this lens that you're seeing the world through and yourself through and the future through that's incredibly negative. Right. Bipolar disorder is really just, um, it's a mood disorder that involves, so depression is often called unipolar um, depression because it just involves the, the lower side. Bipolar disorder involves that lower side, but it also involves um, really elevated states called hypomania and mania. Mm -hmm. Hypomania actually means below mania, so it's not as extreme, and mania is kind of the most extreme elevated states. And what you see in people that are hypomanic or, or manic is extreme levels of confidence, sometimes becoming grandiose. You see euphoria, you see um, often impulsivity because people just sense that their behavior is gonna have positive consequences, so they take chances that they wouldn't otherwise take, or they make decisions very quickly without really thinking about it. You see very high levels of, of energy. So I, I'm gonna describe in my own case, my first manic episode. So hypermania is not as extreme as this, but my first manic episode, I was awake for nine days in a row, just, and no need for sleep, incredibly high level of energy, very productive, often comes with a, a great sense of creativity. So there's a lot of, li lot of literature about the relationship between creativity and, and, um, and hypermania and mania. And it's an incredibly empowering, beautiful space to be in before it kind of gets really out of control and then it can get quite scary. So there's the, really that sweet spot that feels absolutely uh, fantastic. So I understood very well what the symptoms of bipolar disorder were because I'd spent a lot of time reading up about it and trying to understand it. But I also understand, I understood the triggers very well. And so the triggers of hypermania and mania, which are these elevated states, in the literature, what you see is psychological stress is a major trigger. Sleep disruption is another major trigger. And sleep disruption is actually a form of psychological stress, or it's a form of stress. So it does the same thing to your body in terms of uh, cortisol and some of the, the other hormones that are floating around. Um, 
And then the other major trigger was goal attainment. So achieving some sort of goal. And another way of interpreting goal attainment is some sort of reward. You achieve some sort of reward, or even another way of thinking about that is stress is abruptly removed. So when you achieve a goal, often it's because you've been striving towards it, and then suddenly you get there, and suddenly you don't have that, um, that stress or that, um, that need to fight to get to that, that goal anymore. So those are, are three of the, the kind of main environmental triggers for these elevated states. There are some others, things like um, the use of stimulants, so amphetamines, cocaine, that kind of thing. But as we'll speak about in terms of a, uh, an OLGAD environment, it would be pretty conspicuous if they were handing out cocaine to people. So that's not really a, a possibility. The other one is seasonality. So if you live in climates where um, in the US it's more the case, in South Africa, winter and summer are more or less the same thing most of the time. So you don't really have that um, impact of, of seasons. But again, that's not something you can really manipulate in a, in a, a seminar. Right. Whereas things like stress and sleep disruption and goal attainment, you can. So I understood these things very well. When I went to, I initially studied business. So I got a finance degree and I'd been working in finance and um, in the corporate world for quite a while. And in 2010, I joined a company. And as happens with a lot of people that take part in LGATS, I was asked to take part in a personal development seminar as part of my induction. And if you read Margaret Singer's book, the section uh, that's cults in our midst, if you read chapter eight, it's called Intruding into the Workplace. When they speak about Algats, it's because very often they are pushed on employees by um, various employers. You've got a, a manager who's obsessed with them and is kind of a fanatic and then gets everyone to, to participate. Yeah, they recruit human resource people and then they order you know, people, everyone in the company to go to the to the training, and some of yeah. these groups spend millions of dollars annually putting their people through these things. Yeah, and there's there's no good evidence that they produce any lasting uh, change. Not a good return very, on investment. <laughs> no, but they do make people feel amazing for a couple of days, or you know, for some, right. it's a couple of weeks. Yeah. But anyway, so I, I go to this this uh, seminar with the best of intentions. You know, I've I've never heard of these things before, so you know we we actually tried to find out about what it was going to involve beforehand. And as you know, one of the the, the first rule of of large group awareness trainings is you don't talk about large group awareness trainings. So they will often say to people beforehand, and they'll they'll say to graduates who are recruiting other people. Don't tell anyone about what actually happens. It will ruin the experience for them. And it's very important that people don't know what's going to happen because if you do know, then it's going to be less stressful or you're just not going to take part. So but that can uncertainty- I, Can I just you know, yeah. add in, you know, for me, the bite model is what I use, uh, behavior, information, yes, thought, and yes, emotional control, and not telling people information about who they are, what to expect, yeah. and what's going to happen- to you is a sign of undue influence immediately. Yes. But they frame it yeah. as we don't want to spoil it for you. It's going to Yes, I mean I would I would argue that there's there can't be informed consent. And I mean if you read through the documents that mo that a lot of the bigger organizations have they describe things at a very superficial level, but they don't describe the the nature of the interactions and the tone of the interactions which is really the, the, the core of what's actually going on. Right. It's not so much that, oh, we're going to speak about X for you know, a couple of hours. It's how they speak about X. So anyway, so I, we worked a full day on a Thursday, and then we went to this, this thing, and it started at 6 o'clock. And uh, you know, it, it started at, you know, somebody came to the front and said, it's three minutes past six, your training starts now. So it's very, very ordered. They took away our watches and our phones and the windows were closed off so you don't really have a sense of the, the passing of time. And we were there Thursday from six o'clock until two in the morning. They gave us homework, which is very common. Um, the next day we worked a full day. So that was Friday, got there and started again at six till two in the morning, was given homework again. Saturday started at nine, whole day until 12 that night. They gave us homework again. And 
So those first three days were immensely stressful. You know, I was sitting there and I was just thinking, as someone who's trying to avoid relapsing to have another manic or hypermanic episode, this is the worst possible environment that I that I could be in. Um, you know, people were screamed at. Um, you know, there were there were a lot of exercises where people were asked to share, you know, things that had happened to them. And then, as you say, the trainer will effectively convince the person that they are responsible for whatever they've been through. You could have been gang raped, or you could have been your parents could have beaten you and left you, and somehow they'll make you feel like you are responsible for it. And, you know, they will obviously frame it as we want people to be accountable. That's their way of of justifying what they're, they're doing. But if you look at the way that they interact, and if you look at my PhD, there's just example after example after example. These are people that are claiming to be experts in communication. You know, it's it's not by chance that the way that they're communicating is bringing about such stress in people with such regularity. Mm-hmm. It seems very clear to me that this is something that's part of the the design. Yeah. So what you've got is incredible stress. You've got regression exercises. So people being asked to visualize being a child and visualize interactions with their mother which, or father. Which I call and, hypnotic regression exercises. Yeah. And and these are often very traumatic for people as well because you're asked to confront your parents about something bad that's that's happened. And, you know, throughout those three days, people breaking down into tears was very kind of common and right. people were incredibly uh, stressed. Um, so we've got the stress and there's a number of different ways that they, they're generating it. Um, then we've got the sleep disruption because we're finishing very late and then there's homework that you've got to kind of do. And the homework tends to be quite stressful as well. It's really looking at things that you're doing wrong, things that are missing in your life, you know, maybe contacting people that have had a bad influence in, on your life in, yep. in some way and, you know, kind of repairing those relationships. But that can be incredibly traumatic to contact these uh, these people, although they will, they'll justify it by saying, you know, we want people to reconnect and we don't want their relationships to be broken. But my, my view is that it's just part of the recruiting tool mm-hmm. because every person that you reconnect with, they say, well, make sure you invite them to your your graduation ceremony. Right. They want Um, you to recruit them. If I may just interrupt for one more second and share, when I was reading Edgar Schein's book, Coercive Persuasion, about Chinese communist brainwashing, and Margaret Singer studied it as well as Robert Lifton, uh, he used Kurt Lewin's model of unfreezing, changing, and refreezing. And what you're describing also fits that model of disorienting, overloading people uh, to to confuse them, to bring up powerful emotional states in a very regulated environment. My my memory is every chair has to be exactly uh, in line. There is temperature control. They have monitors seated throughout the room. To, to model, you know, reactions, et cetera. So I just wanted to add a little more robustness yeah. to your description. Yeah, I mean, and I would, I, would, I would add to that, um, I would point people towards my, my essay on Elgats and Fight Club as well, because the first thing that they really do when you get into the training is they get you to agree to a bunch of rules. Uh-huh. So they say, these are the rules. You can't do this. This is how you speak. You, you can't speak to anyone next to you. You need to swap chairs. You can't sit next to the same person after a break. You can only have water in the environment. If you want to go to the bathroom, then you have to. And there are a number of things that you have to agree to before they allow you to. And they carry want on with obedience. The well, that's, that's often the case. They want obedience. Yeah. So they, and they set that up right at the beginning. Right. Please so, continue. So, this anyway, is so, great. so for the first three days, we've got this incredible psychological stress, which, as I know, as somebody who's studied bipolar disorder, is a trigger. Right. Then we've got the sleep disruption, which as somebody who's studied bipolar disorder, I know is a a trigger. So I'm worried about myself here. Then on the final day, so it's been three days of hell, really. And then on the final day, there's this very swift shift in mood from being highly oppressive and, you know, you are, you know, to to use Robert J. Lifton's words, from non-people, you become people. And so they, they suddenly switch from, 
you're the worst people ever, you're all assholes, and that's often the language that they would use. And then now suddenly you're amazing, you've graduated, you're one of us. The trainer steps down from the platform and kind of just becomes the same as everyone else. And everyone is now amazing and there's hugging and all the sort of things. So, and there's a graduation effectively. Right. On the, the final day, and then actually two days later as well, there's a more official graduation where they further celebrated. So I'm looking at this and I'm going, okay, you've got stress, you've got sleep disruption, and you've got goal attainment. That's pretty amazing. Then I start looking at the way that people are responding to this, this training. And it was a combination of things. So we were promised certain things, both by the chairman of our company and by the trainer. You are going to experience this, right? And I'm observing what people are, are, are doing in terms of their behavior, in terms of what they're saying, et cetera. Um, and, and then I later went to read about, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, of uh, you know, examples of what people were explaining they, they went through. And it aligned perfectly with hypermania. And hypermania has got a, a very specific fingerprint. It's not just feeling happy. So it's kind of a combination of things. So you see euphoria, you see like excessive confidence, impulsive behavior, sociability, increased energy, increased productivity, creativity. These are things that are being promised by these organizations when they can be framed as positive. So they might say to people, for example, you'll feel really good because that's something that's marketable. They may say to people, you know, you'll, you'll be more decisive. They won't say you'll be impulsive. They'll say you'll be decisive. But if you actually look at the behavior of some people that are, that are spending huge amounts of money immediately afterwards, quite recklessly, or getting divorced immediately afterwards, as a number of people at our organization did, that's incredibly impulsive. But they'll say you'll be more decisive. Um, they'll say you'll be more confident. They'll say you'll be more productive. Um, they won't speak about psychosis, which is a symptom of a real elevation. So that mania often is associated with psychosis. But those were some of the things that were reported over the last 50 years that these organizations have been around relatively consistently. Yep. There were articles published in the 70s and 80s, people experiencing psychosis, being diagnosed with bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, brief psychotic episodes, and and then depression as well. So some people were experiencing very low moods after participating, and there were even claims of, of suicides as a result of, of participation. So I'm looking at this and I'm going, all of the triggers for bipolar disorder are there. All of the symptoms, both on the upside and the downside are there. There's something interesting kind of going on here. Maybe I can sort of make sense of it. Um, so there were really two theories that, that kind of uh, combined to help me understand this. So the first one was a psychoanalytic theory by a, a student of, Freud, uh, of Freud's named Carl Abraham. So this was called the manic defense hypothesis, and this was put forward in 1911. Hmm. And if you know much about psychoanalysis, they, at the time they didn't really have a great understanding of the working of the brain. So it was a lot to do with energy and defense mechanisms and those kinds of things. But essentially what, what Carl Abraham said was that mania seems to be a defense that people have against feelings of inadequacy and guilt and shame and worthlessness and all that sort of thing. So when a person is being pushed down by these negative feelings, there's this unconscious force that kind of pushes back to keep the person in balance. Mm -hmm. And so it didn't involve dopamine or neurotransmitters because at the time they didn't have that level of understanding. But essentially what he was saying is that we want to stay in balance. We want to stay in homeostasis and therefore we will generate these really positive thoughts to counteract the negative thoughts about ourselves. And sometimes those positive thoughts spiral out of control and kind of push you mm. higher than what you should be. And that's what leads to, to mania. So that was the, the psychoanalytic uh, component. Then I started looking at um, some of the theories, the more current theories that, that explain bipolar disorder. And one that's fairly common is something called the, the dopamine hypothesis of bipolar disorder. And stated very simply, and there are neuroscientists who would be very upset with this uh, simplification of, of uh, this, this very complicated disorder. But, it, but basically, the, the idea is that 
Um, an elevation in dopamine, which is a, a brain chemical like serotonin or noradrenaline or GABA or you know those sorts of things. When there's too much of this chemical, then we see mania and or hypomania and mania. And when there's too little of this chemical, we see depression. And there's obviously a lot more going on, but it's just there's a lot of evidence that dopamine's involved. And I can give you a little bit of detail if that might be useful. Sure. Go for it. So, so for example, if you give a normal person amphetamines, which elevates dopamine, then you'll start seeing symptoms that look very similar to hypomania and mania. If you, the people that have got Parkinson's disease, we understand that Parkinson's disease has got to do with a breakdown of, dop of dopamine producing neurons in a particular pathway. And so they're given something called levodopa or L-dopa, which elevates dopamine and it allows them to move better and think better. And what a lot of people don't know about Parkinson's is actually that a lot of people with Parkinson's experience very low mood as well. Mm. They struggle with mood because the dopamine levels are, are, are quite low. What they would see is that some of these people that were taking L-dopa would start to experience hypermanic and sometimes even manic symptoms as well. So that was one of the indicators. There's a lot of brain imaging studies, so functional MRIs and PET scans and various other things that suggest that dopamine might be involved. And then you, you have these people who are quite unlucky who have Parkinson's disease and bipolar disorder. And so with Parkinson's, we know that it's because of a, a lack of dopamine. Sometimes when these people, and so say they, they're struggling with movements, which is a, a clear sign of, of, of Parkinson's disease, um, if they have a manic episode, there have been case studies of them, their, their movements improving while they're having the manic mm. episode. So that's a pretty good indication that, that dopamine's got something to do with the manic episode because we know that it has an impact on, on movements. And there, again, a number of different indicators, but the, the idea is that dopamine plays a big role in hypermania and mania. So I saw this going on and I was like, okay, that's that's great. Let me see if there's any sort of relationship between what goes on in LGATs and dopamine. And so this is now literature that's quite separate and it's been built up over the last, I would say, 20 to, to 30 years. And I, I think that that's quite important to mention because in 1987, there was an article by Morton Lieberman, who was an early researcher of LGATs, and he basically said, you know, there's no reason to assume, based on what we've seen so far, that these trainings couldn't cause psychological damage to some people. There's no reason for us to think that they couldn't cause damage. And there'd been a lot of reports of damage. So that's what his article was kind of referring to. But he said, but at the moment, we don't have a way of explaining the relationship between what goes on in the trainings and what we're seeing in terms of the claims of harm. And the claims of harm involved psychosis, mania looking sort of symptoms, depression, that kind of thing. Suicide. So, suicides have been claimed as well. So that's just why I kind of say it's in the last 30 years that this research has emerged that's shown, for example, we know now that acute psychological stress causes an elevation in dopamine. Mm -hmm. So if you put an animal or a person through a high level of stress, dopamine elevates. Mm -hmm. Additionally, if you put a person through a, a lot of stress, or another way of saying that is if you put a person into a state of homeostatic imbalance, then the dopamine system becomes more sensitive to reward. So you stress a person, dopamine starts elevating, and the dopamine system is kind of going, if something rewarding happens, I'm going to like really start firing properly. So what you've got in a... And, and then we also know that rewarding events elevate dopamine. That's kind of the first thing that people knew about the dopamine pathway. It's often referred to as the reward pathway or the pleasure pathway. Something good happens, dopamine is, is elevated. So what you have in a large group awareness training is you've got a recipe for an elevation in dopamine, theoretically speaking. You've got stress elevating dopamine. You've got stress making the dopamine sensitive to something rewarding, and then you've got something incredibly rewarding happening immediately afterwards. So I was like, okay, well, great. That makes sense. So, so theoretically, it seems like these trainings could be elevating dopamine. 
And then when you look at the results of participation, they often refer to it as transformation or breakthroughs or whatever. But if you actually look at how participants, how their family members, um, how researchers in the past have described what's going on, they describe very specific things. And it's euphoria, confidence, energy, productivity, impulsivity, sociability, all of these things that are identical to hypermania um, and in some cases identical to mania. Then you see at the very extreme kind of cases, you see psychosis, which is closely linked to an elevation in, in dopamine. So separate from the dopamine hypothesis of bipolar disorder, there's the dopamine hypothesis, hypothesis of schizophrenia or the dopamine hypothesis of psychosis. And there, as I've said in my presentation, there are over 7,000 articles now on the relationship between dopamine and psychosis. Antipsychotic medications are often uh, used to reduce dopamine signaling. Uh -huh. So people that are likely to experience psychosis are given drugs that reduce dopamine because there's a lot of evidence that, that dopamine's involved. So, and then, so that explains all of that stuff going on. And then you've got the relationship between extreme stress or let's just say chronic stress and dopamine. Mm -hmm. So if you stress a, a, a person out for too long, then it's kind of like sweating. You know, if, if you first go for a run, you sweat and it cools your body. But if you run for too long, eventually there's not going to be any sweat left. Similar thing with, with dopamine. When you initially put in that stressful situation, dopamine is produced. But if you, if you keep a person in that state for too long, then you're going to deplete dopamine. And you know, they're going to be different people that go into these trainings. They're going to have different biological makeups. They're going to have different backgrounds. They're going to have experienced different things. So the way that this one-size-fits-all process impacts each individual is going to be very, different. Very so some important. people might just be overwhelmed by the process, whereas other people are the dopamine still being produced and they feel amazing. And then maybe they just kind of come back down to normal, whereas other people might just be completely overwhelmed by the by the experience. So And I would just add, if I may, John, that you yeah. know, you mentioned people divorce, but some people fall in love with another participant or they spend a, a outrageous yeah. amount of money on buying something they can't afford because of this this manic, you know, state as well. But now they have consequences to these these yeah. behaviors, right? Well, often the sometimes the divorce and the marriage are kind of closely related. So they fall in love with somebody at the course because they're in this right. state of feeling incredible around them. And then they divorce the person that isn't associated with it. And because the person who's not associated with it doesn't want to join and therefore they yeah. are uh, uh, undermining their progress or their spiritual development or some other crap. And I mean, yeah, and, and I... <sighs> Yeah, I mean, there's there's often this argument made when you engage with people that are that are supporters of these organizations that these organizations are all about bringing people together. They don't get you to break up with families and whatever. But you often see these um, these problems in relationships as a result of participation. The relationships may get stronger for a while if both people join or if the whole family does. But if you've got some people that are fanatics and some people that are just like, I don't want to get involved. Often it can become um, an issue. But sorry, just to finish the, yes. the thought in terms of the, the depression side of things. So there's a considerable amount of evidence that um, you know chronic stress leads to a depletion of dopamine. And there's also evidence that a depletion of dopamine is associated with depression. So while Morden Lieberman didn't have a way of explaining the relationship between what was going on in these seminars and the negative effects, the hypothesis that I've got, which is the dopaminergic defense hypothesis, explains both the, you know, the positive effects and many of the claimed uh, negative effects. And just to kind of, yeah, sorry, to close that loop in terms of why I call it the dopaminergic defense hypothesis, the idea is that if we're in a difficult situation, our brains have evolved to want to, 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 want to keep us in balance, to want to keep us in a, in a homeostatic uh, state. So we know the way that we, res we respond to physical challenges. So if something threatening comes at us, 
The HBA axis kicks into gear. We start producing cortisol. We start producing adrenaline. Blood rushes to our muscles, all that sort of thing. We sp we've spoken about sweating when we are getting too hot. Our body wants to kind of regulate us the whole time in terms of physical things. It makes sense that it would also want to regulate us in terms of psychological things. It doesn't like it when we are unhappy. It wants to make us feel okay. So what happens in these environments is you've got this very extreme situation where you're being made to feel guilt, shame, inadequacy, fear, all of these things at an incredible rate that you wouldn't normally experience. Additionally, your access to your normal defenses are being stripped away from you. So you can't really eat in the environment. Often it's three hours, you know, two or three hours long that you've got to sit there. In terms of social support, they don't allow you to sit next to the same person after each break. So they don't allow you to kind of develop a support structure there. Um, yeah, so there are a lot of things going on. The, you, you've got a real sense of uncertainty, which is very stressful. You don't know what's going to happen next because they don't want to ruin the experience and nobody's told you. Yep. So it's this really extreme environment. And so because you don't have these other normal regulatory mechanisms at your disposal, my argument is that an endogenous chemical is being released which helps you to feel like you can deal with the, the situation. And if we know anything about dopamine, we can look at things like cocaine and amphetamines and those sorts of things that people abuse. And the reason that they abuse them is because it feels really good to take them. You take these drugs and they make you feel like you can deal with, with anything. If you take cocaine, it's not inserting dopamine into your brain. The dopamine's already there. It's just making it more available. Same thing with, with amphetamines. So these chemicals are in our brains and they're sitting there, you know, and they're used for various things, but our brains also don't operate in a way that, that kind of says, well, I'm going to use dopamine for this and that's what it's for. It, our brains have evolved. So it's kind of like, okay, you're uncomfortable. If I release this thing, it's going to make you feel better. And so it makes sense that it would be released. So we've got evidence that it is released under those circumstances, but it also really makes sense that Dopamine would be a really useful chemical to be released when you're made to feel like you can't deal with something because sure. it really makes you feel like you can. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, and I would add that that we're talking about large group awareness trainings, but I can, you know, say in my Mooney workshop, my first one, it was a parallel to this kind of pressure cooker of uh, stress and, co you know, everything was controlled and limited access to information and all kinds of emotional manipulation as well. Well, I actually used your, your book in my, my PhD at the, at the end. So I, I, I used it to kind of say it's, it's not just in these seminars that you see this pattern. Mm. So I, I looked at the fact that you went through a three-day process yep. of being made to feel quite guilty stressed, sleep deprivation, yep. and then elevated to an emotional high at the at the end. And I, I really think that the process is kind of, um, it's used in all sorts of different places, even in some mainstream religions, to be completely right. honest. So can I shift yeah. and just say, I um, now we're living in a world of social media where things are engineered for dop dopamine bursts with likes or follows and such. Can, yeah. you, can you apply a little bit to what I'm seeing? Because people are getting so addicted and they're going into these, these vortexes uh, uh, where they lose time and in many cases coming out with different beliefs um, being on platforms because of AI, you want to speculate on applying your. Yeah, model? I mean, I, I would, I would have to, I'd have to look at those things individually to kind of understand. But I, I would think that there's, there's more things going on. So, mm -hmm. what you see in a large group awareness training is, I often think of it as kind of a bad magician. So a person that's kind of the moves are so obvious that you can really see what the, the process is. I see. And it's very clear that it's very geared towards an elevation in dopamine, in, in, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. um, and th that elevation in dopamine is not the same as you'd get from getting a couple of likes on a something that sure. you post on 
social media. So it's a far more powerful thing. So that is going to play a much greater role okay. in terms of influence in, in that environment. If you go onto you know, various sites, and I, I, I'm really just speculating here uh, to a degree, but there's probably more of a sense of, of social identity that's coming with it as well. So you're feeling like um, you're part of a, a particular group. Uh, I, I would know that, for example, you know, gambling is definitely geared towards elevating dopamine because one of the other ways you elevate dopamine is with uncertainty. Yeah. So if you know that the reward is coming, it's not as yeah. there's not as much dopamine as if you don't know that it's that it's coming. Right. So if it's very so that's how kind of slot machines work is they they kind of the reinforcement is not every fifth pull; it's a number of pulls that you don't really uh, right. You it's don't really intermittent know. reinforcement is much more effective. Yeah. Can I just also yeah. share, I listened to a podcast by a psychiatrist at Stanford who's an addiction expert. I believe she wrote a book called- Anna Lemka. Yes, and Dopamine yeah. Nation. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that's, uh, so that's, that's actually fascinating. I, I really, I actually contacted her and um, shared some of my research with her. I don't know if she's had a chance to read it. Mm -hmm. um, but what, what I found interesting is that her- her whole thing is really about that that dopamine scale, like a balance, right. and kind of saying that if you if we access dopamine too frequently and too often, then when we experience something rewarding, after a while we're not going to find those things rewarding anymore. So it's really important that we get away from that that easy access to enjoyment, which we find through um, the internet, through social media, and that kind of thing. But there was a chapter in her book which kind of spoke about things from the other perspective, which is obviously in line with, you know, my research, although mine was before hers. And again, this is kind of the same as with Yuval. When you find somebody else who's got very similar ideas and, have, and they've come up with them without you, without, they haven't seen your research, you haven't seen right. their research, but they come to, to similar things. And so there's a chapter on basically causing pain in order to lead to an elevation in mood. And so it's very much the same process of putting people through stress. And she speaks about people that are having ice baths and how there've been studies that show that dopamine is elevated massively after those ice baths because of the physical pain that, that people are, are put through. Um, she speaks about some experiments that were done on animals, which are quite difficult you know, for me to read. But again, similar things, put them through something terrible, and then dopamine elevates afterwards. And when you read the descriptions of how these people are behaving afterwards, it's again, right. hugely kind of confident and happy and full of energy and that sort of thing. So that same idea of the dopaminergic defense, you see... Um, coming through in, in that book. It's yeah. fascinating. I, and I was also just thinking as you were talking, John, about uh, uh, B&D and S&M practices of you know, spanking yeah. and hitting and hurting and then feeling good about it. And I, it's just- And yeah, and I mean, if, even I would say the, the idea of like autoerotic asphyxiation is, is Got a, there's a parallel between that and what goes on in these these seminars. It's it's a physiological reaction because you are getting your body to overcompensate for something. You're restricting something, and then it's it's overcompensating, right. and it feels really good afterwards. It's just happening on a far shorter term basis and with different goals in mind um, than these these seminars. Yeah. Right. So um, it's absolutely fascinating research and i just see more neuroscience being developed to try to understand the relationship between thoughts and feelings and behaviors and environments and yeah. and i guess for me at the moment i'm most afraid of ai and bad actors deliberately dialing into people's reactions in order to cause them to you know, want to convert, have a ecstatic yeah. religious experience where they are willing to strap on a suicide vest and blow strangers up for some 
ideology or any number of other yeah. things. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel like the way that's the the way that's the groups that that you've looked into, and I, th I think certainly with large group awareness trainings, the way that they've developed their processes is through kind of trial and error. So they've found things that work, and they've keep those. They find things that don't work, they get rid of those, and that's how they evolve. What you're talking about now, I feel like there's just a far faster process. So the that AI or even just any form of um, the ability to take in a huge amount of information, tinker with things, find out what works, find out what, what doesn't work, is just means that the process is going to be um, accelerated. Mm -hmm. And I don't necessarily think that it will be AI in terms of um, some process that can necessarily work it out and think through it, but even just a, a process of kind of trial and error and working out like that, it doesn't have to be AI, I think can be uh, really effective if you've got a lot of people's um, information and feedback online. It's it's fascinating. So you're going to do a book based on your dissertation? I would I would love to, yeah. I need to kind of uh, find some time with, from the, the work that I'm, I'm doing, but I'd really love to. I think there's a lot more to it as well. So there's the sort of neurobiology side, but then there's also quite a lot of uh, social psychology and the psychological kind of components and and how they they relate. So it's one thing to say you're going to generate this powerful experience, but then how is that actually used as a as a a tool of influence? Right. And you know what you see in in large group awareness training is that they spend a lot of time convincing participants that they shouldn't trust their thinking. So they're thinking, you know, they'll never be able to work out the process and that kind of thing. They should rather trust natural knowing, their experience, um, their hearts, that kind of thing. So they guide people towards being more trusting of an experience as as form of evidence, and then they trigger this powerful um, experience at the end. And then they point to it and they say, "You see, that's that's evidence of the, these things that we've been telling you." Um, and I think that that's a uh, yeah, I, th I think that that link as well is is quite important to. Yeah, and to I have a a, a a a theory or a, an assumption that part of their deliberateness includes indoctrinating people into a belief system that there's no such thing as a victim, uh, that you yeah. create your own reality because then it le leaves them off the hook for being. Yeah, everyone. Everyone's responsible for themselves, but they're not responsible for anyone. That's the, the amazing irony that, that seems to slip past. So you're responsible for you know, being molested as a four-year-old, but we're not responsible for people that do something impulsive after our, our seminars. You know, We gave you the technology, you used it how, how you wanted to use it. So yeah, yeah there's, there's quite a bit of hypocrisy. Going on. A lot of yeah. exactly, but it's it's quite you know, and and I I've, I've been asked about Elgats, and I'm like, well, if they really are interested in transformation, why don't they hire mental health professionals and screen people before they go through this to identify people who may have bad reactions to it? Why don't they pay mental health professionals to be on site to, you know. Uh, be available to people, and the answer is is because it costs too much money, and because it would out what they're doing. Yeah, and so I mean, I, I know that some of the large organizations do have disclaimers that have been put together by. So they'll say, you know, if you've got schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, depression, then don't take part. But to me, that's a pretty good indicator that they know that what they're doing is impacting some of the, the neurotransmitters that we've been uh, speaking about. They certainly have paid psychologists in the, the past to do, various, to do various things. I don't know if it's uh, for the screening and, and that kind of thing, but yeah, I, I have, I have my, my skepticism about some of the psychologists that have uh, provided endorsements. The, the, to me, they just don't align with reality. Yep. So yeah, yeah. unfortunately, you know, claims that the trainers are the trainers are really sensitive and the environment is you know very kind and gentle and and I'm you know I'm, I'm reading 
thousands of people's descriptions of of these things, and it just doesn't align with uh, right. what these mental health professionals were were saying. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So, ta- what's your future research? If if uh, you, somebody said we give you a grant, what do you want to do uh, as re- future research, John? Well, I mean, having chatted to you a little bit, I, I really like the the idea of uh, looking at the relationship between law and and psychology and and psychiatry, and and kind of getting an understanding of what is required from a, a legal perspective for for changes to be made. So it seems like we've got quite a lot of evidence. We've got a lot more evidence they had in, than they had in 1983, 1986, when the DIMPAC committee was uh, putting things together. And I feel like there, there needs to be a revisiting of of the the information that we have and and a discussion with uh, people from the legal profession to kind of say, what will it take for us to do X, Y, and Z? And then that can guide the research going forward. I feel like we've done a lot of the research. Yep. And so rather than doing more research, it's kind of about figuring out, okay, how do we make this research as, as effective as possible? So, I mean, for me, the because uh, I've been studying forensic psychology now for a bunch of years uh, because yeah. I want to update the law on this. And the thing about destructive mind control cults is they're doing impermissible social psychology experiments on people. Yeah. We can't do them and replicate them ethically because they're human subjects. So then how do we try to use scientific methods? My guess is there may be ways to use deep data. Maybe there are ways to um, study former uh, attendees of these groups. Um, Yeah. uh, But uh, the other thing is it's... I don't know, but I can tell you for sure, I look at social media and AI and and how people are feeling more anxious, more depressed by being on platforms and, and, and some people are committing suicide when their parents take their phones away from them because they're yeah, their whole identity is online instead of in the real world. And uh, it just seems to me like there's going to be a lot of litigation against Facebook or Meta and 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 uh, uh, so many of these other platforms, whether it's uh, Instagram, TikTok, etc. Um, and but the question is, how can we how can we do research that's scientifically validated? Uh, and then have experts go into courts of law and explain it in a yeah. way to judges and juries that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I was I was actually chatting to my my third year students today about the scientific process, and and I was talking about hypothesis generation, and I kind of said to them, you know, you, you often it starts with an observation. So in my case, for example, I observed what was going on in these these seminars, and then you, through rationalism, you come up with some sort of theory to explain and you generate a hypothesis, but then you want to test that, that hypothesis. So at the moment, I've got a hypothesis that there's an elevation in dopamine and it's causing these things and, 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 and a, um, a depletion of dopamine that's maybe causing depression. But in order for that to be verified, I'm going to have to take, you know, 20 people, send them into a, an, an LGATS, measure their dopamine levels using functional MRIs or, or something uh, like that, see if there's a change, which is very expensive and difficult and practically challenging, as well as ethically problematic thing to do. I mean, the reason that I went, uh, that I did my research uh, using secondary data, using pre-existing books and journal articles and online discussions and that sort of thing is because I didn't want to send anyone into one of right. these seminars. I be- I really believe that they are problematic. Even if you don't have a a, a serious breakdown, I think that that what is being done in the seminars is is unethical, and I think that it's damaging. Even if you come out, you know, technically unscathed, so it is a real issue to test that hypothesis out. You can kind of replicate it in in other spaces, but you can't put people through the level of stress 
that they go through in in an algad. I, I think there's there's no research ethics committee that would sanction sending people into an algad if they knew exactly what goes on. Right. In them. So they wouldn't. You know, it's it, 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 it's an issue. Yeah. And I mean, but that kind of tells you something as well. The fact that you can't do research on them is surely a, a, a red flag in itself. Well, that's the double bind with social science research because uh, two of uh, two of the most important social psychology experiments that I use in my work to explain yeah. undue influence is Milgram's obedience study and, and, and Zimbardo's prison study. And yeah, it yeah. was those two, and there was one other third study that formed internal review boards ethical standards for human subjects because people were having serious breakdowns and 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 bad yeah. reactions to it and unfortunately mind control cults are doing the impermissible social psychology experiments so yeah. you know the, the the i i don't have an answer to it but i can tell you i I, I was listening to a podcast by the Center for Humane Technology. Uh, they have a podcast called Your Undivided Attention, and they had a law, law professor and neuroscientist, Nita uh, uh, Farahani, I believe is her name. And she was talking about how the technology of headsets, virtual reality, and 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 tracking i'm wearing an apple watch oops it's like yeah. collecting so much data and they're going to get to a point where we have you know bluetooth earbuds to listen but it's going to be tracking our brain activity covertly yeah. and 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 uh yikes like really do i really want to do that do i really want to do I want to have the convenience of a Bluetooth, you know, earpiece, but have my brain activity scanned and recorded and put in the cloud for other people to potentially mine and figure out how to influence well, I mean, Steve Hassan? I don't know. Well, I mean, Stanley Stanley Milgram, one of his kind of comments, and I think I think Philip Zimbardo spoke about it as well, is is that kind of that that slippery slope. So we've already been moved in that direction. And, right. you know, so we've kind of said, okay, 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 okay. So um, I, I think that that's, you know, uh, yeah, I think it was Zimbardo who said to get people to do evil things, you, you've, you've got to do it gradually and quickly. So before they're thinking about it, but also in increments small enough that they, that they don't notice how, how big the, the changes are. And I feel like we are already doing a lot of these things and providing a lot of people with information just because we want to be able to use their sites and right. and X, Y, and Z. So, exactly. Yeah. So John, Dr. John Hunter, fascinating work. Uh, thrilled to know you. And uh, I'm going to offer you any final thoughts to wrap up our, our interview. Um, yeah, not not too much more from, from my side. I'd, I'd love to make my research available to anyone who who wants to have a, a look at it. So I'm, I'm sure that uh, you said you'd be making some of it. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so we, we record this and then we do a blog based on the interview. We embed the video of this interview and we can add links, including links to your dissertation and your, new, and your paper and, um, and how to contact you. Uh, so that'd be fantastic. Count on yeah. that. And I mean, I, 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 I I enjoy interacting. Well, I mean, I, I enjoy it. I, I find it's fulfilling to interact with people that have that have been through large group awareness trainings mm -hmm. and have kind of not really known how to explain their experience, you know, to themselves, but also to people um, around them. So I do think that my my PhD research is very useful in that regard. A couple of articles that I've that I've written and that presentation from the, the ICSA conference as well. I think from the 1st of October, it will be available and I'm, I'm happy to share that with, awesome. with everyone as well. It was great. Yeah. I appreciate it. So be well and I hope to meet you in person one day. Thank you that, so much. That would be fantastic. Yeah, thank you, great. Steve. Cheers. Cheers. That's it for today's episode of The Influence Continuum. I've been your host, 
Dr. Stephen Hassan. Theme music for the podcast is by Nasser Malik. To keep up to date with me and happenings that I think are important, please visit my website at freedomofmind.com. There you'll find in-depth articles about cults, mind control, and other relevant topics. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at cultexpert. If you want to develop a comprehensive understanding of these topics, I highly recommend my books, Combating Cult Mind Control, Freedom of Mind, and The Cult of Trump, in that order. These books are a culmination of 45-plus years of experience and will really help you grasp the complex web of undue influence. I have also launched a new nine-hour online course for anyone interested in a deep dive into issues related to recovering from undue influence in all forms. While this course is designed for clinicians, everyone can benefit. If you're a former member, I congratulate you for your bravery and invite you to use the hashtag IGOTOUT and join our online community at IGOTOUT.org. Remember, love is stronger than mind control. And thanks for listening.